I am grateful to be able to share this message today. And I know everything that goes into a single message like this one. So I want to start off just by acknowledging how the way that our entire community is blessed by our senior pastor, uh, Pastor Herman, week after week. Pastor Herman and I have been ministry partners for over eight years, since before the beginning of New Beginnings. And I am so grateful for him and for all of you, for our entire New Beginnings community. I want to thank you for worshiping with us today, and I want to especially shout out my community at our San Jose campus in downtown San Jose, and especially our amazing staff team and volunteer team there, and every single person in that community that makes it a remarkable place to worship. I love you, and I can't wait to be back with you again real soon. All right. Now, in our in-person gatherings today in Redwood City and in San Jose, as people came in, we handed out a special treat, uh, this Hershey Kiss. And so I'm going to explain in just a little bit why, but I want to invite you, if you are joining us online today or you're even watching the broadcast at a different time, go ahead and grab yourself a special treat from around wherever you are. It could be you know, a piece of chocolate. It could be a chocolate chip. Um, if you're very health conscious, it could even be a sweet piece of fruit. Go ahead, get it ready. Don't eat it yet, but uh, I'll let you know when we're going to engage with that. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father God, I just thank you for this time. I thank you for your goodness and your presence here with us. And I pray that just out of your grace and your mercy, you would share your heart with us today and help us to go deeper in relationship with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture for this morning comes from Psalm 119, which happens to be the longest chapter in the Bible, both in terms of the number of verses and the number of words. We're not going to be reading the whole thing, but... The context of this psalm is the writer expressing to God gratitude for God's word. And for today, I want to highlight three verses, verses 103 to 105. Verse 103 reads, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. All right, I'm going to invite you now uh, in San Jose or where you're watching online to go ahead and eat that Hershey's Kiss or the treat that you prepared. You can go ahead and unwrap it in San Jose. Uh, thank you for making sure that that wrapper finds its way into a garbage can. Uh, but I want you just to take a moment to savor the flavor of what you've just put into your mouth, to experience the sweetness. And I know many of us are very careful about what we eat, but just this one time, I want you to set aside, you know, any feelings of guilt or should I be eating this and just allow yourself to enjoy it as a treat. Allow yourself to recognize the way that your body, your mind respond with a sense of delight. Allow yourself to feel that internal response of happiness or joy. Now, of course, the point of this is to create an association 
between this visceral experience of delight and joy and sweetness as we consider this, the Bible, the gift that God has provided for us in his word. And the reason why I think this exercise is important is because for so many of us, our automatic feeling, our gut reaction when we think about the Bible is not delight. It's not pleasure. Certainly, that's true for many people who are outside the church who may approach the Bible with mixed feelings, uh, may find it problematic, may find it offensive. But it's also true for many who are inside the church. And we may have a high view of Scripture. We may respect it and revere it as God's word. And at the same time, we may not often personally engage with it. For many of us, the idea of taking regular time to read the Bible may feel more like eating broccoli or taking medicine than like eating and savoring a piece of chocolate. So we don't often delight in it in the way that we just heard the psalmist doing. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, we've been in a series entitled, Should I? And the big idea of this series is that we all have key choices that we make in life. And we've looked at a few of them in this series. Choices about, you know, should we engage our grief and how should we do that? Uh, should, how should we engage some of our, our closest relationships, some of them that may be challenging or difficult, including our relationship with our mothers that we looked at last week for Mother's Day. But the common thread of this series is that God wants to give us wisdom to help us to navigate the challenges of life, to help us to live full and abundant lives of joy and not regret. And one of the primary ways that he provides wisdom is through his word, through the Bible. And as we navigate all the should I's in life, should I, you know, go to this college? Should I take this job? Should I date this person? How should I deal with this difficult person in my life or this strained relationship? And all the other key choices that we have to make. The primary source of guidance that God intends for us to have is his word. It may be a bound version like this. It may be an electronic version that we read on our phones. But the Bible is how God speaks into our lives. So why isn't it sweet to us? And I want to suggest that, at least for many of us, part of the challenge is that there isn't very much of a difference between the way that we think about the Bible and the way that we might think and react to books like these. This is a tax guide to help file taxes. This is a handbook of criminal law. And for many of us, we may primarily relate to the Bible like a book that is just full of rules and regulations. And there may be parts of it that we just feel like are too hard to understand or just irrelevant to the things that are going on in our lives. When I was growing up, uh, our family was occasional church attenders. And so on the rare occasions that we went to church— I can remember getting bored when the message was happening. And yes, that happens to everyone, even future pastors. 
And when I was bored, I would pick out a Bible from the pew and I would start to read. And I would get through Genesis 1 through 4 and I would read through the story of creation and the fall. And then I would get to the genealogy in Genesis 5 and I would start to read lists of names that were so unfamiliar and my eyes would start to glaze over. I'd flip ahead, maybe a section or two. I'd get to some strange laws in the book of Leviticus, and then I would just give up and put the Bible down. So that probably happened every time I went to church, which, you know, was probably a dozen times as I was growing up. And I came to know Genesis 1 through 4 really well, but I knew nothing about the rest of the Bible. Now, if we've had these kinds of experiences with the Bible, then it makes sense to us that it feels to us a little bit like the tax code or a book of criminal law. And I mean, even though these are kind of relevant in some way, I mean, we all pay taxes. We all try to keep as much money as we can. Uh, none of us is trying to go to jail, but we don't spend time in our free time delighting and engaging with law handbooks and spending time soaking them in. And really, if you're spending time late at night Googling the tax code or, you know, searching for the nuances of criminal law, it really is probably for one of two reasons. Either you're trying to figure out if there's something that you're doing might not be okay and whether you can get away with it, or you're thinking about something that someone else has done that really bothers you and you want to figure out if there's a way that you can stop them from doing it because it's not okay. And sadly, all too often, that's how we approach the Bible as well. It's why it ends up getting brought into all the political conflicts that are going on right now. And we've lost what we were intended to have the gift of engaging with the Bible, of receiving God's wisdom, of savoring it with delight, like we delight in chocolate. I want to suggest that this book, the Bible, was never intended to be like a tax guide or a, or, or a list of criminal laws. And I want us to consider what actually makes this book the word of God. What gives it authority? Is it the rules and regulations that really only make up a very small part of this book? Or is there a larger purpose to this gift of Scripture? And as we think about that question, I want us to consider that the Bible isn't the first word of God. It's not even the most important word of God. This is what it says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and it wasn't talking about the Bible. And the Word was, God, was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then continuing in verse 12, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, 
children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. You see, the first word of God, the primary word of God is Jesus. Jesus is the word of God because he came to express God's heart, to allow God to be known. Jesus' life, his words, his purpose, his death, and his resurrection— all of it was to make God known and allow people to be brought into relationship with God. That's the purpose of Jesus and why Jesus is God's word. And the Bible is God's word only because it serves the same purpose as Jesus. The Bible tells us about Jesus. It places Jesus within the context of God's purpose from the beginning of history to allow us to know God and to enter into deeper relationship with him. So I want to ask you this question. Do you know what it's called when there is a piece of writing and the sole purpose of this piece of writing is to share the writer's heart and to bring the recipient into deeper relationship? It's called a love letter. And if you've ever written a love letter or a love email or typed out a long love text, and I know some of you out there have, you know that you pour your whole heart and soul into that letter because you long to be in deeper relationship with the person that you're sending it to. And that's why this book, the Bible, exists. That's why God caused it to be given to us as a gift. We have this book because God brought together about 40 different authors writing across 1,500 different years on three different continents to tell a singular account of, God, of God's heart, of, to allow God to pour out his heart and let people know who he is and to enter into deeper relationship with him. And the climax of this book is the life and ministry of Jesus, who is God's son and is the full expression of God himself. So the first takeaway that I hope you leave this message with is that if you regard the Bible primarily as a book of rules and regulations, you've got it wrong. The Bible, first and foremost, is a love letter to you. Now, at this point, a logical question would be, is it true? Is the love letter authentic? And I can't do justice to that question in the context of just this message, but it absolutely is the right question to ask and to particularly focus on the Bible's account of Jesus, who is the first and primary word of God. Because if Jesus really did 
live and teach the things that he did, if he really did die and was resurrected, then he provides the lens for understanding every other part of the Bible. He is the anchor and the proof that God really is trying to reveal his heart and enter into relationship with each one of us. And if he is the full expression of God, then every other part of the Bible can only make sense if we see it in light of who Jesus is. And there are so many reasons to trust the Bible's account of Jesus. If you really, really want to dig in, I have a book recommendation for you. Uh, it's The Resurrection of the Son of God by one of the foremost uh, contemporary biblical scholars of today, N.T. Wright. And in this book, he exhaustively analyzes all the details of the resurrection of Jesus. He looks at it with the best scholarship, both secular and Christian, and there's no book that's been studied like the Bible. He looks at it from the lens of historical analysis. He examines it culturally from the Greco-Roman perspective and the Judaic perspective, and he looks at it linguistically from the texts themselves. And when we're trying to figure out if something is authentic or not, it really is the details that matter. And when we come to the account of Jesus, it really is the details of what is recorded about his life that allow us to have confidence in the authenticity of the New Testament accounts, especially because there are so many of them that would just be totally counterproductive unless they were actually true. So let me just give you two quick examples of what I mean. First, any reading of the Bible makes it clear that the Bible does not pull any punches about showing the disciples of Jesus almost all of the time looking like everything that you wouldn't want in future spiritual leaders. They fight amongst themselves. They misunderstand Jesus and lack spiritual insight. They rely on their mothers to try to talk Jesus into giving them special positions in the group. And when Jesus needs them most, they all run away in fear. Now, these are the same disciples that would later become the leaders of the early church. And if anyone had both the motivation and the ability to alter the New Testament accounts, even just to make themselves look better, it would have been these people. But they left all the unvarnished details of their own fallibility in the text because there was nothing that was as important as capturing what had actually occurred. Or, as a second example, the fact that all of the Gospels have the first witnesses of the resurrection being women, who, in the context of Greco-Roman culture, had such a low social standing that their testimony wasn't even accepted on legal matters. Again, it's an incredibly inconvenient, counterproductive detail if you were just writing something that would stand up to as much scrutiny as possible. You would never write it this way. But this is what actually happened. It was the, the accounts of the New Testament are written as they are because the most important priority was getting the account correct for what actually occurred.
every element of the Gospels is consistent with what they claim to be. A collection of eyewitness accounts brought together in the same generation as the crucifixion of Jesus and shared to explain ultimately why a small group of men and women who were with Jesus went from being terrified of the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities to turning the Roman Empire upside down and proclaiming a message that they were willing to die for. So yes, there is an extremely good foundation to believe that the love letter really is true. Now, there is so much more that we could say about this, but in the last few minutes of this message, I want to focus on a different question. If the Bible is an authentic love letter, then what does it mean to live under the authority of Scripture and to do it in a way that allows us to continue to delight in Scripture, to savor it with our lives? What does it mean to be able to be guided by Scripture in all the choices that we have to make? As the psalmist proclaims in verse 104, I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. So let me suggest that we've already seen what the authority of the Bible can't mean. And it can't mean just taking this book and taking and ignoring 95% of it and just taking the 5% of it that are actual rules or regulations or commands, and simply saying, this is the thing that everyone has to do. It can't mean that because first, when we approach the Bible that way, we turn what is supposed to be a love letter into a hammer. We end up either whacking ourselves or whacking other people with it. And there is no pleasure and delight in that that leads to greater intimacy with God. If there's any pleasure or delight in approaching the Bible that way, it is the pleasure that comes from having power over other people. And that's not what God expresses through his word. The second reason that it can't mean that, just boiling it down to rules and regulations, is because invariably, if that's all we're focused on in the Bible, then we will inevitably prioritize some commands over others and we turn ourselves into hypocrites. After all, all we have to do is look at history. And there are so many Christian groups and movements and denominations that have splintered over different convictions about what a specific command or instruction in the Bible means. And these are all people that believe that the Bible is the word of God and yet they come into deep conflict, civil war, over what it looks like to live under the authority of a particular command. And the interesting thing is, they may be fighting over one particular command, but there's another command in Scripture. In Ephesians 4, it says, Ephesians 4 verse 2, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. In verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of Scripture through the bond of peace. When we're fighting over a different command, are we keeping this command that is found in Ephesians 4, verse 
2 and 3. And if we're not keeping this command in Ephesians, how can we say that the most important thing is just keeping the commands of the Bible? How do we pick and choose which one is really important? And finally, and most importantly, when we focus only on the rules, we completely miss why Jesus came in the first place. Jesus came because we couldn't earn our way into relationship with God by being good enough, by following all the rules. The whole point of Jesus' death and resurrection, the whole point of grace, is that we needed Jesus to fulfill everything that God intended for us to fulfill so that we could be restored to relationship with God because of his righteousness and not our own. And if we can't keep all the rules, if that's how, if we enter into relationship with God by grace, then how could the Christian life, how could our understanding of the Bible possibly be boiled down to saying it's just the rules that matter? So instead, I want to suggest that there is a different way that we are intended to live under the authority of God's word. That's God's word as it's expressed in the Bible and God's word as it's expressed in the life and ministry of Jesus, who is the first and primary word of God. And this way of thinking about authority comes from N.T. Wright, who I mentioned earlier. And what he notes is that the Bible is a love letter, but it's a love letter that also tells the true story of God's saving work. God's work of justice and redemption and forgiveness all throughout history. And the insight is that true stories in our lives carry their own kind of authority. It's a different kind of authority than rules and regulations, but the authority of the true stories in our lives has an authority that almost always goes even deeper. And many of us know that this is true. It's been written in our, in our own lives. For some of us, it's the story of immigration and sacrifice that may have been lived out by our parents or our grandparents. And their story carries authority in our lives for what we value and the choices that we make. It may be for some of us here, the story of our lives where we encountered a situation where we got a second chance that we know that we didn't deserve or that we encountered a time of trauma or pain. And as we came through it, there was a redemptive force that occurred in our lives that changes the way that we engage with the world. This is the authority that shapes who we are and how we live. And so, N.T. Wright picks up on this and what he suggests, and I love this because I feel like it's so true in my life, that the most accurate way to think about the authority of Scripture is to engage with it like Scripture is a five-act play. The first act that we find in Scripture is creation. And this is where God causes everything to come into being. And then the second act is the fall, where our need for God is revealed. Our need for, God's, for God to restore our ability to be in relationship with him. 
And then there's a long third act of God engaging with the people of Israel, showing his love and revealing his character of justice and faithfulness over and over again through trauma and through difficulty and through pain. God's faithfulness shines through to his people. This is the heart of the Old Testament books. And then the fourth act is when Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, came to reconcile all of creation to God. And when Jesus shows up and when he does the ministry that God called him to, we see the ways that he is the fulfillment of everything that happened in the Old Testament before. So the sacrifices and the sacrificial system that occurs in the temple, the temple itself, all the cycles of struggle, all of that points to Jesus. And Jesus' death on the cross, his sacrifice, once and for all, covers all the ways that we fall short of God's intention for our lives. And it is through his death and resurrection that the door is opened for us to be in restored relationship with God, to be a part of God's family. And so now we're in the fifth act. And the fifth act is about us. It started with the early church, and we see it starting in many of the New Testament, the later New Testament books, but it includes us and how we live our lives right now. It the fifth act continues through you and through me. And the way that we submit to the authority of the Bible, the authority of God's word, both in scripture and in Jesus, is that we are called to live in alignment with, consistently with all the parts of God's salvation story that have come before us. Or in other words, living under the authority of God's word means that we live for God's story rather than pretending that we are the hero of our own tiny story. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means for us to live under the authority of God's word. That's the context for us figuring out how we honor and take seriously every part of the Bible. And that's what the authority of scripture has really meant and looked like in my life. It's the story that captured my heart when I finally read past Genesis 4 and discovered in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and especially in the person of Jesus, God's heart, God's love, God's forgiveness, God's desire for justice and to restore this world. Being in God's word, delighting in it, savoring it, allowed me in college to consider what I felt like was most important in life. And in my 20s, I was blessed to be a part of a community of young adults. And we would meet every week to talk about God's word and to study different passages. And as we uncovered God's heart and God's story all throughout scripture, it shaped my life. It shaped my choices. It gave me insight to make different decisions around money and around work and career. And it 
brought God's wisdom into decisions around who I was going to marry and when to take that next step. It was literally hundreds of sermons and discussions about the Bible and personal devotional times that helped me to go deeper in God's word, to delight in it, and to see the consistency of God's heart for salvation and justice and love. And I found the ways that God was calling me to live in a way that my life would be a part of that story. For me, it meant choosing to value purpose over money. And across my 20s, to take 50% pay cuts three different times in order to move in the direction that God was calling me to move. And ultimately, it meant choosing to serve as a pastor rather than as an engineer. And it hasn't always been easy. There have been tough choices to make, but there is no greater privilege than allowing God to write even a small part of his incredible story of love and forgiveness and salvation through what would otherwise be just an insignificant span of time, which is my life. But that's just my story, how I was shaped and called to live out the fifth act. The key question for you today is how are you shaped? Because we don't all play the same part. Thank goodness that we don't play the same part in God's story. God's work in the world, God's story is far too vast and creative for everyone to play the same role. So how are you called to live under the authority of God's word and to allow your life to be wrapped into God's story? What dreams are, is God calling you to dream? What people is God calling you to serve and to lift up? And ultimately, how will people see God's heart and know his love through your life? As we answer those questions, as we spend time in his word and seek his guidance and seek his wisdom, as we savor it like chocolate, like as we delight in it, in the gift that it was intended to be, we will find our lives wrapped into his story and he will actually continue to write his word through our lives. Amen. My prayer for this message is that God would use it to change and deepen the way that you and our entire community views scripture, that it would move us to delight in it, to receive it as the love letter that God intends for it to be, and that we would be able to receive the gift of wisdom and guidance that God intends for us to have. And I just want to offer two practical next steps. If you feel like you want to take a next step of going deeper in scripture, first, I want to suggest joining our Reveal Bible study. It's not too late. You can get more information or sign up on our events page, but that is a great community to go deeper in scripture and get to know other people. And secondly, if you can't do Reveal, I want to challenge you, if God spoke to you through this message, to simply take one chapter a day from one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and read through the Gospels 
and read through one of the Gospels and see the way that Jesus expresses God's heart and to how he desires to wrap your life into his story. So if there's a next step that you would like to take that we can come alongside and support you in, I just want to encourage you to fill out our online connection card. And especially if you've heard this message and you realize that you want your life to be wrapped into God's story. You want it to be about salvation and justice and God's work in the world. Then I want to invite you to, to take today as the day that you say yes to following Jesus. And whether it's your first time saying that or recommitting to that, you can let us know on the connection card. And we would love to come alongside and support you in any way that we can. You can also let us know that you are taking a next step in responding to today's message. And our message response today is simply, I will spend more time in God's word in some way and allow my life to be a part of God's story. And that some way really is anyway. It could be, you know, listening on an app. It could be spending time through a devotional or one of the two ways that I suggested earlier, through reveal or reading through one of the gospels. And finally, I want to suggest this reflection question to you. What would it take for me to see the Bible as a source of joy and delight, the way that it's supposed to be, a love letter written to us to guide us through life? Thank you for joining us today. We can't wait to see you next Sunday, either online or in person, online at 9 and 11, uh, or rebroadcast on demand through the week, and in person at 11 o'clock in Redwood City or San Jose.